Hi there, this is Regular Tech for episode 10 with me, Niklas Beer Lumblad, and... And me, Richard Allen. Yes, and this, this episode is going to be about one of those buzzwords that, that you've seen thrown about in technology policy for for ages, I think. And it's it's this notion of a distinction between op- open and closed ecosystems, open and closed networks. And, and what would you say is the key distinction between open and closed, Richard? So um, I think if we, we go back and, again, look at the origins of the Internet Protocol and the World Wide Web, and they are not the same thing. We keep going back to this, one invented by uh, Vint Cerf and others, one invented by Tim Berners-Lee and others. And uh, the Internet Protocols themselves are not inherently open in the sense that the systems they connect are not inherently open. So it, it's a protocol that allows you to, to use the same thing to connect with any other device, but it can be a connection between two entirely closed devices. And so, for example, if I connect from my phone to my bank, you know, I like to think that my phone is an entirely kind of private closed uh, system. And I like to think that the bank is an entirely private closed system. And these two are connecting with each other using internet protocols. So, so the, the internet protocol connects anything, whether that's a, a system which is open in the sense that anyone can access it and do things there and take content from it. But it also connects systems that are closed, which are deliberately designed so that not everybody can access them, take stuff from them, access content on them. If we think about the web, on the other hand, I think we're in a, a different space where you know the, the fundamental design goal of the World Wide Web was for information sources to be open to each other. And in many respects, if you have a a, a website that doesn't allow sort of free and open access is a broken website. It goes against the c- kind of core goal of uh, the World Wide Web, which was to allow information sources to be linkable that people could follow. And it's not a great experience to be following these links if you then hit a closed system. You can't access the information. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's interesting because already there we run into some of the basic problems of open and closed distinctions because other people would say that, well, you know, the internet protocol is open because anyone can connect to it and it doesn't actually... Uh, come under the protection of patents. It's not patented. You don't have a pay license, etc. And it shows that this openness concept is different across all the different uh, layers of the stack. In a sense, you can you can be open at one level, and then you can connect closed systems at another level. And and I think a lot of the challenges in comparing open and closed systems comes to to comparing apples and oranges, and not really talking about what the key characteristic we want to be open is. And so, for example, if you talk about um, open data, which is a, a buzzword if ever there was one, the notion of open data is that it should be available to anyone. Anyone can access it and that you can download it and it should be in a format that allows you to, to manipulate it and work with it different ways. And what we talk about there is openness in the sense of accessibility, that you can sort of work with it, that you can... and accessibility and malleability that you can sort of shape it in different ways and i i think that that it's almost easier in a sense to start out by looking at what's really closed what's really closed and then you get to the patented proprietary systems of closed source because we have the entire discussion of open source versus proprietary software in this mix too it's it's fascinating that such a 
um, a, a fuzzy concept that's open and closed had had such a massive role in defining the internet policy debates because it's it's always uh, it's almost used as a, a sort of lethal criticism if if I tell you that your system is closed your <sighs> Facebook is a walled garden it's a closed ecosystem you're locking people in all of that is 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 essentially me telling you that that you're a bad person there's like a there's a there's a, a, an ethical moral quality to 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 the accusation of closeness. How is that really true? Aren't can't closed systems be quite beneficial? I mean, they certainly can. So I think you're absolutely right. It is this spectrum, and often an ill-defined one. I, the way you describe it is exactly open good, closed bad. Um, and and yet, as I say, when it comes to certainly my online banking service, I think closed good, open bad uh, for for that kind of service. So so there is this spectrum, and and I think you, you put your finger on it again when you talked about issues around patents and licensing. So, so essentially, there is a you know, closeness really depends on what kind of permissions you need to get to do something. So one, one the other way to think about this is permissionless and with permission. Um, and so if you're using a technology that is patented or licensed, you know, by definition, you need a permission. Uh, and that permission could be very expensive to, to secure. Uh, if you're using a technology like the internet protocols that are uh, freely available, then you don't need anyone's permission to use those protocols. Although, for, for some important aspects, you would. If you want to register a domain name and have everybody recognize your domain name, there are, there are rules. And you, you need permission to have your domain name. You need to pass certain tests to have your domain name registered. Uh, and then we, we can go like right through the spectrum to, I mean, some, something like an open public website. Uh, very little permission is needed. Our podcast. Uh, um, I mean, there are there are some things you need to be able to access, whether it's Spotify or Podbean or wherever you're going to get it from. But basically, it's pretty pretty low barrier. Um, app stores actually, I think, are a fascinating area. Again, if you the app store is, is quite an interesting model. If you're the the Google or the Apple App Store, they will argue they're open. Uh, anyone can come and register their app there and make it available to mobile phone users, but with conditions. And and it's not a complete free-for-all. And we had the debate actually not so long ago about uh, an app like Parler, uh, yeah. which fell foul of the conditions and got excluded. So again, how open do you have to be? Or how high do the barriers have to be before you say something is not open? Yeah, and are, are um, the Android App Store and the Apple App Store open or closed? And again, I don't think we can answer with a binary thing. I, we can say they're fairly open, but with some quite important restrictions. <laughs> and, and that may be true for a, a lot of services across the internet um, beyond your, you know, your absolute sort of bog standard website. Here's the content, turn up, you know, uh, read it, do what you like with it, go away again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think you also you sort of bring in another aspect here that's important and very salient when we talk about open and closed, and that is security, because the the uh, provide the the hosts of the app stores would argue that we need some ex ante testing of the software in order to know that it's secure, and and some people would say, well, then it's not open if there's if there's ex ante testing of software that you submit to the app store, that means that it's a closed ecosystem, and that system is one that grants you access. 
under the certain conditions, as you point out. But but some other people would say, well, you know what? Openness is the absolute guarantee for security because only if you have an open source application, you can have a thousand eyes to throw at it. And if you throw the more eyes you throw at it, the more likely you are to find the bugs and the weaknesses, etc. So it's really a confused set of concepts, the open and closed concepts. But let's let's examine it. Let's sort of look at a, a little bit of a, a different different perspective. Another another person that Pope, I don't know if uh, folks read today is Jonathan Sutrain. And he wrote this book about the future of the internet and how to stop it, I think is the title. Isn't that? I think that's the yeah. title. And the idea there was that the internet had been this enormously open structure where anyone could add anything and everything was discoverable. And then it was sort of slowly going back to the early network structures of AOL becoming a, a more closed environment. And, and that the pendulum is swinging between walled gardens and open pastures or what you would like to call the sort of the opposite of the walled garden and i i i think that's one where we've been involved both of us in in a lot of discussion i mean certainly facebook and other providers have been accused apple as well of, of building a walled garden what do you think is it's in that concept of a walled garden yeah so 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 there are many reasons why you would need to get permission uh, and sign up to certain uh, commitments in order to to access an internet service, <clears throat> and you describe one. Security is obviously one of them. Um, in the case of something like Facebook, it's the fact that it has personal data within it, which people have not said they want to share with the whole world, but with a specific community. And I think that's actually a really interesting development. That you know that the, again, the web protocols were designed in this academic environment, which we we talked about previously in our copyright conversation. That in academia. That there's really no argument for restricting access to any content. It should be, if, if you've you know produced an important research paper, it should be out there so that other people can build on it. And so the World Wide Web developed in an academic environment was developed with the intention that that people would want to be sharing with the whole world worldwide, sort of in the title. Um, and and then you you started then developing services like Facebook and others where. They're inviting people to come and share content with limited sets of people, and therefore they need a whole system that does restrict access to make sure the data is only only gets to those people who uh, the publisher is, is authorized to do. And so you build these layers on top of the web that effectively restrict things. Now, I think the interesting question that people do co- correctly ask is, whether it is you know purely or any restrictions on access are purely motivated by the user interests by delivering what the user wanted or whether there's also a commercial interest in restricting access beyond that which is necessary for the users um and this is where i think again when we use the phrase walled garden it's sort of loaded and it tends to have a negative connotation and the negative connotation is the sense that um, the, the wall is sort of not just keeping people out, but keeping people in, <laughs> that it's there mm-hmm. uh, in order to protect a particular business model uh, and, and goes beyond that. So I think if we want to test this, we should ask ourselves the question for any service. Um, uh, we can use some of the, the human rights language, which I always like is, you know, are, are the restrictions necessary and proportionate in, ter- in terms of the interests of the user? C- can the service demonstrate that when it restricts a certain form of access, um, and one of the things that's sort of really been really hot over the last couple of years is so-called API access, uh, which is where somebody can come along and like pull a whole bunch of data off of a service to use somewhere else. And that can be entirely benign, but it's also the way that bad people might you know, be pulling data off in order to do bad things with it. 
And so again, if if a service decides it will offer an open API or it'll be a very closed API with particular permissions, is it doing that because the restrictions are necessary and proportionate in the interest of their users? Or is it doing it because it just kind of wants to protect its place in the market and keep out competitors? So that's the kind of test I think we can apply when when discussing how open a platform is, rather than just assuming all of them can be open all of the time, because in many cases, they will then not be delivering the commitments that they made to their own users. Yeah, I agree. And I, <clears throat> I think both of us remember an interesting example here, which is um, a while back, there was an open API to Google Contacts. And uh, Facebook and Google got into a bit of a spat. It was quite public, so there's no secrets here about whether or not um, Facebook should be able to access that API without providing an equal API, API of its own. And it raised a really interesting question about openness that I think is not often discussed, and that is that we talk about openness as an inherent quality in a system, and we sort of say the system is open or closed. But in reality, openness is a relational concept. So openness is between two systems, right? It's between an actor and a system or two systems. And, and I remember one of the questions that came up in the discussion between Facebook Facebook and Google was that of reciprocity. You know, if, if, if you were going to open and use our APIs, we would like for you to have equally open APIs back. And I think that's, that's an under-discussed aspect of this. When we talk about openness, we should really talk about it as, as a bilateral concept between several different actors, between the user and the system, between different systems, between different companies. And, and I think that's, that's something that also gets then encompassed in, in a much broader discussion about open and closed, in which open or closed are, are taken as fundamental concepts in competitive analysis and sort of thinking through competition policy. And, and that brings us to, to questions like data portability and, and the ability you have to take your data with you if you want to leave, etc. And, and I think there's been a lot of interest around the edges without any crisp definitions of openness in the competition policy space. What do you think about, for example, the attempts to, to build data portability into competition theory? Do you think it's a core aspect or do you think it's misguided? Um, so, so, I mean, it's definitely going to be part, I think, of the regulatory toolkit. Um, but I think it's more complex than, than at first appears the case. And, and you describe this uh, uh, you know, as often as a bilateral relationship. It's actually a multilateral relationship. Multilateral, yeah. and, and, you know, and having lived through the... The uh, the other side of that contact importer thing. This is what these things are called: contact importers. And and pretty much every you know new service uses them, and it's their best way to grow quickly. So all of us, when we install... Cloudhub got into trouble for it recently uh, for for uh, importing a lot of them, and then uh, and, and perhaps using them in ways that some users found offensive. Yeah. Exactly, and they, yeah, they, they've they've sort of you know, hit, hit barriers a lot of the time. But, but as I say, it's, you install a new app today, any kind of social type app, and it'll say, hey, can I access your contacts? And and uh, it uses those. Um, but this this is throws up, this is a really interesting question. And, and this was Facebook's justification. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's uh, uh, again, entirely sort of uh, without substance. Again, we go back to, you know, what, we can test whether it was necessary and proportionate, but, but Facebook would say they didn't have permission from the other people whose contact details were being shared. In other words, I may have a list of 100 sets of contact details of people I know, but is it okay for me to share those 100 sets of contacts with a third party without 
you know, haven't got permission from them. And, and people will, I'm sure, point to a hypocrisy here and say, yes, but Facebook was happily ingesting data. It just didn't want to, what's the opposite of ingest, egest it. I don't know the, the right <laughs> word. So, um, uh, but, but there is something there. And I think, again, when, if competition authorities get into this space and you can see the, the, the sort of value to them or the, the attraction to them of saying, look, if a new service comes along, I am going to insist that existing services have to uh, offer a facility to port all of their data quickly and easily over to the new service in the hope that users will move. Well, that's going to be fine potentially for the limited set of data that is clearly yours and only yours and that nobody else has a claim over. Where it gets really difficult is where it's contested um, and contacts, which are in many ways the most valuable data if somebody's building a new network-based service, are absolutely a contested area. Um, and you can imagine, again, let's use the example, if a friend of mine decided that they wanted to start using Parler, uh, for example, use that, you know, it's well known, it has a particular reputation. They've migrated from Facebook or Twitter to Parler, and they take my contact details and they give them to Parler. I, I'm not feeling great about that. So, so there is this sort of issue of, I mean, a genuine issue to say, uh, um, let's. We need to involve all the parties. We need to come to a settlement here, and if authorities decide, as part of their regulatory settlement or their competition policy, they want to push data portability, then we really need to get into the weeds and define exactly what permissions are required from whom, in order for that to take place without it then leading to a whole set of unintended consequences, which is people complaining now probably to their data protection authorities, that because of action by their competition authority, their data has now been given to all kinds of unsavory characters who they didn't want to have it. So, so that's the sort of detailed stuff we need to get into here in this multilateral conversation about uh, moving data between different systems. Yeah, and I think one of the core things that we underestimate when we talk about making a system open or talking about openness generally is that that openness presents us with a very acute problem of governance of the data at hand. I mean, this is true not just for open data or for data portability. It's true for open source projects. It's true for digital public goods. It's true for sort of all systems that are inherently open present a bit of an ownership issue. And in the worst case scenario, they present a bit of a tragedy of the commons issue. If it's open, who's going to tend to it, who's going to take care of it, who's going to manage and maintain it in a way that's that's sort of reasonable over time. And I, I think I think one of the things that we we lose when we just sort of end up in this single dimension of comparison between open and closed is the question of, of control and and I, I mean legitimate control over the data. And and that to me has been uh, really interesting to see also when it comes to data portability. There's been several privacy scholars who have argued that, yes, I can see the point from a from a uh, competition policy standpoint, but what you're doing is, in, you know, in, in fact, you're increasing the liquidity of personal data. And when you do that, you also increase the security risks and the data breach risks in a way that's, that's not proportionate to the benefits that you hope to get. And so I think openness and governance is a really interesting issue to think through. I remember, but you can go wrong there as well. I remember early Microsoft saying that, oh, you should really not never install Linux because since nobody owns it, nobody's going to, to take care of it. And we know that there are governance structures here that are new and interesting. And and I I, I sort of, I, I want to bring the question to to governance over open systems for a bit and just sort of see how we think about that. I mean, again, we can perhaps come back to app stores again, uh, 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 as, a, as a really interesting example that the 
you know, you can you could imagine an app store that didn't have a Google or an Apple sort of sitting there checking everything and and carrying out quality controls. And I could imagine that might be tragedy of the commons, pretty chaotic. And for the user, that they would find uh, that a lot of the time they're installing apps that are just bad, uh, either you know proper malware or don't work. You know, there's no kind of quality control. There's no ability to to understand what's going on uh, under the hood of the apps in the way that the people at Apple and Google could do. But at the same time, there have to be concerns that that you've got companies who have their own position in the marketplace effectively policing their competitors uh, and deciding whether their competitors can have a presence or the terms under which the competitors can reach their audience, which today are mobile phone users. So that might be an example where governance may need to evolve. Like, well, what What is the structure that would give you the benefits of quality control uh, and I think you know again as a user i I certainly um I think I prefer a world with these uh, I may want to have sort of unofficial app stores available, but I think I prefer a world where the core app stores are doing this work on my behalf in order to help me navigate all the world of possible apps that are out there, but perhaps the governance needs to um be independent of the commercial interests of the of uh, players in the field so that's the kind of area that might evolve um again arguably a lot of the challenges that people have you know with the big platforms uh, fall into that same category that uh, yes you know google search is open uh facebook say that anyone can come and create a business on facebook but (laughs) there's always a but dot 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 um they have their own commercial interests so perhaps again they should be encouraged to develop governance models where their commercial interests are not allowed to intervene in a decision where where they might, again, for very good reasons, have to restrict a certain kind of activity. But let's make that restriction based on the fact that it's necessary for the user interests, not the commercial interests of the platform. But I, I, I think that kind of thinking around governance may lead us into um, uh, better solutions than, uh, you know, sort of simply trying to, I don't know, create competing completely open systems you know let's let's all stop using google search and create a completely open brand new search engine well no let's think about if there are problems with the governance of google search and some of the competition cases i know you're familiar with looked at this saying look we think you are unfairly excluding people um let's address that and and improve the governance structure um i think that may get us further than just assuming that we can do away with these these places altogether and and go for these entirely open free-for-all spaces um, which i'm not sure in the user interest yeah i agree and and you can you can almost i mean it's interesting because you can think about this as governance working at a limited spectrum of the stack if if you go to governance in in sort of the lower end where you talk about open standards for example what we find there is that the sort of the birth of the internet to the coordination of the early internet was entirely dependent on open um, ad hoc standards, like through the IETF, rough consensus and running code was the guiding principle there. And even the W3C was largely operated as an ad hoc open standards organization to a large degree. And then you come up into the the sort of the layers of data layers, the app layers, and suddenly you need maintenance. You need somebody who curates the data, somebody who thinks through this, and you sort of have a, a greater need for governance again. And then once you come up to the users, you want openness and less governance. And so there's there's this openness, if you sort of look at it across the stack, I don't think you could create the internet 
if you were trying to do it in a directed way with hard governance. And I equally don't think that you could create the kind of a generativity and creativity and explosion of, of things and commerce that you have if you were trying to govern it at the user level. But I equally think that both would be impossible if there wasn't like a locus of governance somewhere in the middle of the stack that you have to think about, which means that openness would then mean different things across the different layers and where you are. And I think far too often we sort of simplify this into open and close without talking about these things, without talking about governance, without talking about responsibility. And in some cases, technology is, is held back by being open because companies and organizations don't dare adopt it if they don't feel that there's somebody on the hook for developing it or who can help them if something goes wrong. So so there's a, there's a much more complex set of issues, I think, around openness and governance than we usually recognize. But let's... Let's think a little bit. Um, let's think about open and closed in a in an almost geopolitical way. To sort of bring it all the way up. What What do you think about uh, the way that the internet is is opening in some countries and then closing in somebody? What's What's a closing internet? Not a closed one, but one that's more closed, open and closed internets in different societies. How do you yeah. think about that? I mean, this is a real challenge, and and, and there's a story <clears throat> actually this week about um, I think it's Twitter being threatened with being shut down in Russia if they don't remove um, some opposition content. And again, there's, you'd be sort of daily diet when I worked at Facebook was these kind of threats. And uh, I mean, this is a real question. I think maybe each of us would come to a different answer on. Um, but the question is, is often, is it better to have 99% or even 90% of a service or not have it at all? <laughs> And and people come different views on that. So so the example would be again, yeah, the Twitter example. If the Russian government really are determined to pull the plug on Twitter, should Twitter make that opposition content unavailable in Russia in order to preserve the rest of Twitter, which has got masses and masses of more opposition content? Or is that conceding to a closed model of the internet? You know, Twitter is an open platform and proud of being an open platform. Are they are they conceding now? Uh, and is that the slippery slope towards a very closed and very limited version of their service? Um, and mm. it, you can argue it both ways. You can argue, you know, that that uh, uh, that small concession is worth it um, because it continues to keep a much more open information environment. People in Russia can still access Twitter. Um, equally, you can argue that, you know, giving ground on one of those things will over time, even if people in Russia now have a more closed information environment for the time during which Twitter is blocked. Um, and by the way, this that happened previously in countries like Turkey, where that, you know, they did block it for, for a period of time. YouTube, I think, was blocked for a long period of time. So, do we accept that sort of slightly more closed information environment uh, in the hope that it will reopen again later? Um, I have to say I'm in the what I might call a more pragmatic camp. I, I think that <clears throat> a temporary restriction on some content, so closing a little, uh, is generally going to work out better than uh, a, a larger scale closure. Um, I've not actually seen governments concede. You know, again, Turkey would be the example there, where Turkey's government didn't sort of turn around and go, "It's all fine now." They they waited, you know, for the um, the companies to come to the table and talk to them um, and reach some kind of uh, understanding about where the limits are. So, so that sort of closed open is very much a, a national debate. It's a, a governmental debate. 
but it's a debate between governments and platforms that often ends up as this sort of, uh, you know, it's like um, gunfighters in a wild west town, like waiting to see who shoots first and who's going to drop. Um, and so they're in that position quite a lot of the time. And and the, the crucial decision you're making is, you know, bigger closure today in order to preserve a principle of openness or uh, a smaller closure uh, today because you think that that will uh, allow you to maintain as much open information as possible. Um, very hard. Uh, I've been there certainly, and, and I say I end up, I think, in that more pragmatic camp. But that dimension of open, closed, open or closed information environment, I think is going to become increasingly important. Yeah, and it, it highlights also that it's not a binary issue because you can be semi-open or semi-closed in different ways and you just have to make a decision about what the net benefit of of the state you're in between open and closed is to the users or the citizens in any particular country, I think. Yeah. But it, um, it brings us back, I think, one of the things that, that underpin this, if we're sort of digging in the in the history of ideas, is, is that the original conception of the internet was of the internet and the World Wide Web, but I think also of the internet was deeply academic. It was the sense of sort of an open community. And, and that kind of openness, the openness of a community is what then inspired a lot of the discussions. And that's why, why I think you have seen this non-pragmatic reaction saying that any kind of restriction is completely unacceptable because you think that those restrictions then perpetuate through the system and sort of shut it down over time. And I think it's interesting to trace it back to that openness, the early openness, the openness of, of, of John Perry Barlow's independence, uh, Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, etc. There's, there's a lot of that sentiment that today seems weird when different corporations are using open and close to vis-a-vis each other. Because what was in that, I think, sentiment, in the original sentiment, was not just that the system was open in the sense that it was accessible to people or that the standards were not patented, but the openness that the early internet uh, pioneers spoke about was also a decentralized openness, where there's no point of control. So rather than talk about open and closed, we should be thinking hard about what it means for something to be open and centralized, where you can have access and you can sort of use it, and there's still a central point of control. It can be a Facebook, a Twitter, or a Google. And then the other space that's sort of unexplored, and where I think we'll see see more in the future, because I refuse to think that the internet has sort of come to a stable equilibrium, is this question of open and decentralized. And there's a lot of talk about this. There are alternative social networks, for example. What do you, and, and, and the big drawback there seems to be lag. It, it consumes an enormous amount of resources to be decentralized. But think about blockchain, for example. Think about the, the kinds of things we're seeing in that space. What do you think about open and decentralized architectures uh, in the future? Yeah, I, I, mean, I have to say, I'm um, uh, uh, rather in the camp of you know, blockchain is a way of building a very expensive and energy-intensive database. So I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that, that that's going to be the way to go. But, but I think your again, your your re- reference back to the early days is right. So let's you know you design a system for the needs of the people who are going to use that system and the original need was groups of academics and researchers in different institutions 
who wanted to share stuff with each other as peers. So it was genuinely, it was peer-to-peer networking was the, you know, between us and our computers in in Stanford and you and your computers in MIT and wherever it was around the world. And, so, and I think the protocols are kind of optimized in a lot of ways for that peer-to-peer sharing. Uh, um, email, again, the, you know, the, the classic, classic sort of tool of the internet was designed for people in academic communities who all trusted and worked with each other to connect with each other. Um, and it was kind of upset and email has become less useful uh, as it's as it's sort of grown way outside of that community and all sorts of people have sort of jumped on it and use it in, in but ways. But because of its openness. Anyone can you an email. Yeah. The openness is what creates the, the overuse and then that reduces the value of the thing, right? Exactly. And, and actually and people are layering on top some slightly more closed protocols now to try and you know verify email servers and keep the spammers I, out. I just have to give you an example because I was using this email service the other day called hey.com. And hey.com is email and you can connect your regular email into it. It's done by the Basecamp uh, founders and the company that produces Basecamp, the project management software. Uh, we're not getting any actual commission for this, but if you'd like to send us money, please do. Uh, but but yeah. they, they designed this email system so that anyone who sends an email to you is put in, in sort of a green room where you can screen them. And you say, yes, I want email from this person or no, I do not. And, and that means that it's a permission-based email system. And and it's almost as if the openness creates a demand for the closed it, or filtering system, right? Exactly, yes. And the technology like, like DKIM and others that sort of layer on top of so the ways to set up your email server so it it proves it's legit to other email servers. And so, yeah, the openness, in, if the openness proves to be not useful, and often I say in, in this case, it's when the openness has gone outside of this trusted, academic peer-to-peer network um, then you have an issue and then in a sense these centralized servers come in to kind of make up for for that deficit to make up for the fact that uh, we talked about before that like someone has to deal with the chaos of of this system that's now you know spread to a wide variety of people on on a a social network i mean if you look at the numbers for facebook the number of people who try and create fake accounts every day i mean it's like hundreds of millions and that's somebody sitting there taking advantage of the open internet with a computer somewhere and they've written a little script and the script says create new facebook account you know off it goes and so you need this centralized system in a, in a decentralized social network there would be nothing potentially maybe blockchain anyway but nothing potentially to stop uh, that person creating their millions of accounts and the network would become useless and so in a lot of senses you've gone centralized to, to kind of protect or or preserve the utility value of a particular system. Uh, over time, you're right, the technology, the the power that we have in our pockets is becoming so great and, and bandwidth constraints are, are uh, lifting um, uh, quite rapid speeds now. That does mean that the potential at least is there for peer-to-peer uh, uh, models or decentralized models. But I think the question then becomes... Uh, you, you're still left with a sort of question of how do you make sure that you're uh, in that sort of peer-to-peer model working with people who are trusted peers of you genuinely as opposed to people who are taking advantage of an open system to scam or spam or do ever whatever kind of uh, unpleasant things or just make noise, just make it so noisy that you don't want to be there anymore. Um and and so again, I I wonder if there's not going to be significant developments around the devices, particularly the mobile devices. So whether that sort of identity systems inside 
iOS, the Apple operating system, or Android, uh, the operating system used by most most phones, uh, you can imagine a world in which you know identity and verification um, tokens are built into those operating systems, such that I can now join decentralized networks, knowing that all of the other members of that decentralized network have have met certain criteria. So it is it is open and decentralized but uh, still with some kind of permissioning or, or acceptability criteria that are going to be applied. And somebody just buys a brand new phone and like connects it is not necessarily going to be able to connect into that network. They're going to have to jump through certain hoops to be part of it. I think that I mean I, I think that's interesting because you end up thinking if you have a quadrant of so you have the the, the classical consultancy four fielder where you have open and closed on on the, the the sort of horizontal axis and then on the vertical you have centralized and decentralized. You can imagine that growth in the decentralized open quadrant is dependent on an anchoring in the closed centralized component that you really build your trust on that. I think people would argue that there are decentralized trust solutions like blockchain perhaps and and others that that could make that space work. But I, I think there's a much broader question here and that is the question of political pressure. Now imagine for just the sake of a thought experiment that that uh, we came up with a couple of really smart ways of generating peer-to-peer trust. You know, I, I sign your uh, your PGP signature uh, because I know you're a good person, and other people do this too, and you sort of you end up accruing peer to peer trust over time, and 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 this system is decentralized, and there's no single control point. I wonder how the political world would react to that, especially given where we are now in the tech clash, etc. These solutions are currently being entertained because nobody is taking them seriously. I think if you take these solutions really seriously and say, here's a social network without any central point of control i think what you would see then are two things one is that you would see a political outrage over a system being the sign that is outside of accountability and and political control and the other is you would see a massive push to put that control on access and on the telco providers and sort of just what we saw happen with the early peer-to-peer networks the peer-to-peer networks that didn't have a central point of control what happened there was that the sort of everyone turned to the telcos asking them to to shut them down or to inhibit the protocols etc so i wonder if that is a viable space that lower quadrant of of open and decentralized if it's if it would be allowed under the current political uh, analysis of technology yeah i mean i think we're seeing that debate already playing out in in the context of the encrypted messenger services whatsapp telegram signal which which are the close we got to that they still have some kind of central routing function but actually they can't read the messages of the users and the users are forming their own networks effectively peer-to-peer. Um, so it's a bunch of people who are connecting in a trusted network and exchanging information with each other, which the centralized routing function can't see uh, or have access to. And we're already seeing that and we're seeing governments freaking out and and worrying about this. Um, and you're right. I think the first thing they'll do is, as, as long as there's this sort of central registration and directory function, which um, certainly uh, uh, services like like the ones I described, WhatsApp, Telegram, etc., have, they will start by going to those providers and saying, you know, can you exclude these people? And if that doesn't work, you can imagine, yes, the next stage will be to go to local telecommunications providers and say, right, you need to shut this service down. 
uh, you need to stop it working, which actually, from a technical point of view, can be quite challenging given that the they're very lightweight services. They can move around between different servers. It's not not you know obvious where they're coming from, um, but I think we will see that play out, and, uh, and maybe that's the sharp end of it in a sense that we will see through the debate around encrypted messaging services the the sort of foretaste of other uh, people in that quadrant, the decentralized peer to peer services, how those are going to play out. And by the way, you know if you're going peer to peer. I can't imagine anyone not building encryption in. Like, why, why would you today? I mean, it doesn't have to be a messaging service, but any service that you're, where you're saying, look, we're going to allow you to connect in a trusted way with trusted people using your phone, which is perfectly capable of doing end-to-end encryption. Like, it seems to me that's going to be the norm. And so, again, what we're seeing uh, in terms of government reaction to encrypted messaging services is a good foretaste of what we're going to see if there's a serious development of these uh, trust, trusted places. By the way, the, the thing I said about um, uh, you know the fact that you might want to prove with certain credentials in your phone operating system that you're legit, well, that does actually create a point of control. So again, I think a lot of the focus may end up being on um, uh, iOS and Android as these potential points of control when when all else has gone, when everything else has gone peer to peer and decentralized. Yeah, and I, and I think you also uh, another example of how the society reacts to that would be the uh, early peer-to-peer um, copyright network. So, for example, uh, Casa, or um, you could talk about Gnutella, or you could talk about all of those different the systems. The ones we talked about in our excellent episode. In our, in our copyright of this podcast, yes. exactly right. And so I think yeah. the reaction to those is very much what you would expect to see as a reaction also to to the. Um, to a decentralized open system that really works. Because I, I really think that this brings us back to, to another question about open and closed. And that is, you know, imagine the extreme case of a system that has no control points. What would that do? Would that be a net benefit for us socially or would it be a net challenge? If there was like a, a perfect case of an architecture in the lower quadrant, the sort of decentralized open, that, that could not be controlled, that would really live up to the, the early uh, internet hippie vision of, of the internet. Here is a place that treats censorship as damage and routes around it. Here is a place, it's a home of the new home of mind where weary giants and steel and flesh no longer <laughs> belong. I mean, that that, that would be, I think, one of the most, I don't think it's overstating it, saying it would be one of the most socially transformative things for, for our societies. Because without control points, how would how would you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think, attractive unless and until you want the control. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's the issue i think with, with a lot of the, a lot of these things that that um uh, if if you're working with a community of trusted people you don't need control i mean people who are sort of well behaved once you allow allow that community to kind of be opened up to all comers unless human nature changes to the extent that people are not going to try and you know, do unpleasant things to, to others, particularly people who are remote, who, who they don't you know have any physical connection with. That they, you know, the, the sort of invisible victim, the far off victim. In, unless that's going to change, then you're going to have people saying, "Whoa, <laughs> you know, can I have the control, please? This bad thing has happened. Where, where do I go?" So maybe it's a distinction between points of control that are like, primarily desired and/or mandated by government. <laughs> 
for government purposes, which which in theory are in the interest of the citizen, but perhaps at the second hand, versus control points, which are ones that are genuinely responsive to user demand. Um, and where they're genuinely responsive to user demand, uh, they may still be very restrictive. Um, it may still be the case that, you know, you can't just say and, and uh, uh, put out whatever you want to put out in a, you know, as a condition of being a member of a community. Um, but if that's genuinely responsive to user demand, I, th- I think that's going to you know, not not be something that you you can stop. Um, so control will exist, but I think the question perhaps is more who imposes the control, and and how transparent is that, and what's my relationship with the people doing this? Back to your governance question, like what's my relationship? Is it is it a self governing community, um, as academics largely are? You know, academics share information with each other, and they largely don't need other people to come in and tell them. What, what they should say or do um or, or um is it a community that's governed by some sort of uh government force and some set of sort of security forces that are governing it yeah and i i think that's right and i think that the demand the citizen demand not just the government demand but the citizen demand for for order would create a very interesting situation in which this is not binary you don't end up with a system that has one architecture or the other they don't dominate but they complement and so what would happen is that you would have this enormously open space where where people would go knowing that it was enormously open and knowing that it was a a crazy place <laughs> and then you would have sort of the more closed environments where people would would sort of be curious their their digital property where they would be thinking about what they buy building commercial trust etc and, and you you uh, I think you brought up before this analogy of a city that it's sort of the the city that evolves in different ways and currently we have we have a lot of the other pieces we have the closed um, centralized we have the open centralized I don't think that I think the closed the decentralized is a bit tricky I'm not quite sure what that could be maybe that's the blockchain it's an interesting question but we don't yet have this entirely open Open space. I think if you think about it that way, and you think of it as a basket of architectures that we're building, I think that then you could switch around. You can say it could have an enormous value to have a space that's entirely open, where anything can happen and anything can be be sort of shared uh, without uh, without control points, because it would be a complement and not a substitute for the other environments. So I remember. I think we've discussed this before. Simone Weil, the philosopher who wrote the Moral Constitution for France after the, the Second. World War, she said, you know, there, there should be absolute freedom of speech. She said, absolute freedom of speech. And you should say anything you want because we need to try out all ideas. But if you mean it, if you intend it, if you're arguing for it, you should be held absolutely liable. <laughs> and, and then she notes that this might be hard to do in law, but, you know, nevertheless, the distinction holds. And suddenly we'd have created this, this sort of area of human interaction, of human social interaction, where, where there is little or no accountability and responsibility. And I think still that that could have quite a transformative effect on societies. So you would end up with sort of an open decentralized space where where you could find almost anything. And it, it reminds me of the discussions of the dark web, which is yes. sort of where I wanted to take this. The, the question is, is the dark web that open place or is the dark web really closed? I mean, this is the question when you said it could be transformative. I think it is. Um, is it transformative good or transformative bad? Um, I'm and, just saying and, transformative. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there have been some, I mean, the, the, the dark web, I think, you know, it, it feels at the moment that it's mostly transformative bad, as in it's it's yeah, it's not used to advance political ideas. You know, free of censorship in most cases. So some 
some technologies like Tor, I think, are uh, used, but the the dark web, as we t- tend to call it, uh, um, tends to be people sort of trying to stay out of sight for other reasons. But there have been attempts to try and do this, I think, in a in a very thoughtful way. There was one, the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, which was driven by Birgitta Jonsdottir, an Icelandic member of parliament and a poet, who... Um, you know, tried to get the Icelandic parliament to pass a law. This is a time when a lot of WikiLeaks stuff was happening where um, the Iceland, Iceland would declare itself to be such a space where, uh, you know, it would host people's content um, free of uh, government oppression and, and try and be as open as possible and as permissive as possible in terms of the the content that would be hosted there. So so I think that thinking has been there. Um, I, I, again, I think the the question would be, you know, if if I think it would work best, ironically, a really open space like that would work best if there were quite strong criteria for being a member of it. <laughs> so, uh, um, and so, it, an exclusive open space might work well. A a <laughs> sort of open to all open space then risks exactly the the sort of situation we find with the with the dark web. It risks sort of being taken over. Um, by a majority of people who are nefarious. Uh, actually, I think in in um, Denmark, and they they uh, they had the place in in uh, uh, Copenhagen, the uh, Christiania. Yeah, Christiania. So it's the, it's kind of the Christiania syndrome, which for those that know is you know declared this sort of free space. And you probably know more about it than I do, Nicholas. And and at various times, it's been seen as this sort of utopian space where people can express themselves, and it's been seen as a haven for drug dealers and all kinds of bad activity. Um, so I think in some ways, maybe this is the Christiania kind of syndrome. Like, is it? You know, would it work out as the the hippie paradise? Or would it work out as the lawless place where people get murdered uh, for drug deals gone wrong? Yeah, arguably you already have the sort of the dark place, the dark web. So, I mean, the interesting question is, could these technologies, and I, there are people working on them actively. I think there's this network called the Diaspora, and I know Tim Berners-Lee is working on something along these lines. Could could such technologies and architectures actually open up a light web where, where you sort of have a constructive open discussion where, where leaks can be protected, where you can sort of make sure that there is open access to knowledge in a way that's that's unsurpassed in other parts of, of the architecture? And so it is. It is exciting, but I think it would be uh, it would be a reiteration of the early challenge of the internet to policymakers, and this time without any central control points beyond just shutting uh, shutting off access from from the telco infrastructure, which uh, which would be a very heavy handed measure to take. Now, uh, uh, before we before we sort of move on from this subject, I wanted to also spend a few moments on the openness of data, because I think open and closed data sets are really important and not least important to, to the budding field of artificial intelligence. And it seems as if, if there is a sort of if there's a more nuanced argument for openness and closed, I think at least for the argument of access to the data and the ability to read and check the data, the transparency of the data seems to be very strong when it comes to data sets that are being used to make decisions in machine learning, for example, or to apply different kinds of artificial intelligence to to everything from medicine to, to other places. What the, the challenge there, I think, is is you know, how, how do you make sure that openness is uh, available to everyone? Because if I were to give you, and a lot of people said to me when I worked at Google, we want the algorithm to be open, give us the algorithm and give us the data. And I would say, well, you, there's a fair bit of data. <laughs> there's the index of the web and there's a fair bit of, of code. And so I could show you, but they wouldn't be open. 
because it would be naturally opaque because the it, the complexity of the thing wouldn't allow you to to understand how it works so there is there is an interesting border here to openness and a different kind of closeness that I think comes from the complexity of the systems we're building. And I wanted to sort of hear you think a little bit about what happens when technology no longer, you know, when it's opaque to us by nature and it's closed and we can't do anything with it. Should we stop at that border and say, no, we're not going to build systems that are that are naturally closed, that are naturally opaque. They, we need to have an openness criterion for what we build or should we just say that, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to have to build systems that are so complex that they cannot be open to access and scrutiny mm. other than by other systems? And that's not good enough because that's just another kind of opaqueness. Yeah, so I think there's, a, a, again, a lot of thinking going on around this. And maybe this is there's a whole other episode on, on algorithmic openness that we should um, yeah. come back to. Uh, but essentially, I think you are looking at, you want to understand the inputs and you want to understand the outputs. And then you want to understand the thing that happens in between. The inputs is actually relatively simple, other than one really, really challenging issue, which is most of the interesting data involves people and is therefore personal data of varying degrees of sensitivity. And we can't duck that issue uh, that, that, you know, that there's some generic non-personal data, but most of the stuff that most of the people interested in most of the time involves kind of behavior by human beings. And therefore those data sets um, may necessarily have to be restricted. They can't be just like thrown out onto the internet. You know, the data set of all searches or the data set of everybody who looked at fake news on Facebook, all of this stuff. Like there's a lot of work to be done to make that safe, but we can get there somewhere with the inputs. And then the outcomes you, you really want, I think if you're going to do the job as a regulator, you want to be able to audit what's going on, which means that you want to be able to take those inputs and uh, apply the algorithm and see what outputs come and test whether you know you could get different outputs with different input data sets etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you want to you, you probably do want to look at the spaghetti in the middle but in some ways the spaghetti in the middle i think is least interesting um because the reasons you say is it may constantly be evolving it may be designed so that the spaghetti changes every day uh or every five minutes um a lot of these systems are but what you're really just to say is understanding what data they're using uh the the organization is using to make decisions or to carry out certain actions and then really importantly understanding what effect that has so again in the fake news thing you want to understand whether the algorithm of a news feed means people see more or less fake news depending on different versions of it um and so you know you can see that hopefully if you have a good methodology for looking at um the outputs um and and then you may say to the company, well, your spaghetti's got to change because uh, we don't like the outputs. Um, but spending your whole time looking at the spaghetti is not necessarily going to give you the answer that you want. I think that's a, an entirely different episode that we need to yes. get back to. And, and and we have to think about interacting with systems much like we interact with other closed, complex systems like people. And so there is a, an interesting proposal for artificial psychology, for example, where you would think about systems as psychological entities and try to predict them that way instead. But that, I think, is for another, perhaps for the next episode. Um, and... I think that concludes um, our 10th episode. And thank you so much for listening. And you can find this and you can find more on Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. 
And thank you so much for listening. Keep your comments coming. All the input or ideas you have, we welcome heartily. And we hope to uh, have you with us uh, next week. Thank you so much. Bye.